And I also think from a business point of view, it's insanity too, because there's millions, literally now in the States, there's millions of hardcore organic consumers and they want something to trust. A lot of them are really educated now. It's like, if you, why would you break that? I just feel you break that trust by doing something like taking an organic skew and making it natural for short-term gain. I think the marketplace is a lot more sophisticated. But one thing it does need, though, it needs brand champions like Farmer Direct as alternative when other CPG companies do stuff like that. This is Evolve CPG, a community of purpose-driven brand leaders who not only believe in better, but actively pursue it. That's better products, better brands, and better leadership for a better world. Come join our online community at community.evolvecpg.com. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, founder and creative director of Modern Species, a sustainable brand design agency helping better brands grow and scale their impact. On today's episode, we're speaking with Jason Freeman, CEO of Farmer Direct Organic, about organic family farms and the need for traceable supply chains you can trust. Well, thank you for having me here today. My name is Jason Freeman. I'm the founder and CEO of Farmer Direct Organic Food. We are a certified organic supplier of beans, grains, legumes, and all sorts of healthy whole foods to grocery stores across the U.S. mostly and a little bit in Canada. Nice. I love how it's just a little bit in Canada, even though you're based in Canada, <laughs> but, but it is such a big U.S. market down here. So yeah, thanks for joining me, Jason, and, and sharing your story with this Evolve CPG community. Excited to have you on the show. And as somebody who's been kind of a pioneer in this natural products industry for a little while, I want to start with something, some of your kind of past before we dive into the present. And I know that from conversations I've seen you had on LinkedIn or, or just conversations we've had that I know that you were involved in some of the early Canadian hemp legalization movement. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that was really interesting. So I started Walk Way Back for me in 1994. You know, the origin story is I had a very good friend of mine who spent six weeks in jail for blockading logging road in Ilaho Valley about three hours north of Vancouver. Just absolutely beautiful waters old growth watershed. The good news about it was that they're actually successful. They stopped the logging and the forestry company, the government, and the First Nations there came up with a really awesome, and, and the environmentalists came up with a really awesome use plan for the watershed. And so, you know, it still remains standing today. So while this was all going on, a friend of mine said, you know, you can make paper out of hemp. And so I was like, ah, oh, wow. Okay. So I went down that whole rabbit hole. I figured out that I didn't have the $150 million to build a hemp pulp and paper mill. And I knew basically nothing about the industry. So I decided to start by actually opening up a hemp shop. So opened up a hemp shop in New Westminster with a few guys. And we had a lot of success actually building something called Vaporons. So everyone knows vaporizers. So we were the second, I think we were the second vaporizer that was produced. We called it the Vapotron. We were the first people to advertise vaporizer in High Times magazine. That was back in 1994. We were doing really well. We were basically selling these up in our store and then decided to export them to the U.S. We were doing really well until the uh, U.S. customs were like, hey, that's not tobacco paraphernalia, that's cannabis paraphernalia. So they seized about a thousand shipments at the border 
and this, these were all direct to consumer, but that basically sunk our company. So, so I was like, well, I'm going <laughs> what am I going to do next? So a friend introduced me to this company called Wiseman Noble Sales and Marketing, and this was December of 1996 in Vancouver, Canada. And what Wiseman Noble Sales and Marketing was doing, a very small events and marketing company, there's five of us. They hired me on as their sales manager. We were lobbying the Canadian government to legalize industrial hemp. And that's a really interesting story because our strategy was that we're going to create a skeleton infrastructure for the industry, which should include national trade show and conference and a quarterly trade journal. So that was the commercial and industrial hemp symposiums and commercial hemp magazine. And so every quarter we come up with a magazine, you know, the government can provide their position, you know, people would advertise farming equipment, planting seed, hemp clothing. Another thing that we did which was really, really important is we separated the issues. We separated the issue of cannabis, so smokable cannabis, medicine, and hemp. And we said this is, you know, this is a hemp uh, trade journal. This is a hemp conference and trade show. This is not about cannabis. So if you're doing cannabis, you can't. Like we barred cannabis essentially. But the reason we did that is because we knew that the government was looking for a hemp industry, not a hemp cannabis industry, because they wanted to legalize cannabis, but they knew back in 1996 the U.S. government put too much pressure on them to allow the Canadian government to legalize cannabis. So they looked to Europe that had already legalized industrial hemp and said, okay, first we do industrial hemp, then we do medical, and then we do recreational. And that's essentially what happened in Canada. So after two years of you know successful trade shows and trade journal lobbying the federal government, we had about 400 people come to these trade shows every year. You know, it's the same group. So it was really cool because the industry did form around the skeleton infrastructure that we created. Groups like Dr. Bronner's Magic Soap came and exhibited at the conference. You know, activists back then, of course, still activists now. Awesome company. Woody Harrelson was there. He emceed or hosted the fashion show. It was a really awesome time. We had sponsored by Health Canada, which is like the U.S. Department of, what would you call that? It's like we have ministries of health and federally you would have your your Department of Health, I think. We had BC Ministry of Agriculture, I think, sponsor Bank of Montreal, which is one of our major banks, sponsor. So we really were, you know, I guess, created consensus so that in 1996, the federal government legalized industrial hemp. And then I think it was 2004, the federal government legalized medicinal cannabis. And then it was 2018, I think, or was it 2019, when we legalized recreational cannabis in Canada, which is still very contentious because, you know, did they legalize it or they just like recriminalize it, right? They corporatize it and recriminalize it. And just like in the States, you know, the legal market is bleeding red ink. It's a complete mess. There's better ways to legalize our bad legislation than what they did. But anyways, the, you know, the situation will prove over time, of course, as, as it usually does in these cases when the government finally makes somewhat of the right move to, you know, legalize cannabis. Anyways, so that was, so 1998, federal government legalized industrial hemp in Canada. And so at that time, I was like, well, okay. So I still wanted to kind of try to see how far along I could get to that pulp paper mill, a hemp pulp and paper mill, and realize that, you know, if, if I want to get there, I have to start 
really, I felt at the farm gate, I have to build the relationship with the farmers who are going to, you know, grow the fiber that eventually going to go into the pulp paper mill. So there was this company called Gen X, which was a collection of organic farmers out of Saskatchewan who had planting seed and could put in a few acres of organic hemp for me. So I approached them. They said, sure, if you can come up with 40 grand deposit, we'll do it. So crazy events. I got some stockbroker from Vancouver to invest 40 grand. So that was great. Farmers put in a crop. And so this was spring of 1999, came up with the money. So the fall of 1999, we had a, a crop. So I formed a company called BioHemp and came up with the first line of certified organic hemp seed foods in Canada, I think in North America, but definitely in Canada. There was, I think Omega Nutrition had oil, hemp seed oil at that time. We had oil, flour, and what did we, oil, flour, I think that was about it. It wasn't much of a product line. That was in the early days before there was a hauled hemp seed or hemp hearts, which is really like, at least for me personally, that's the go-to hemp food. It's amazing for you. It has omega-3s, omega-6s, GLA, SDA. It has excellent amino acid profile. So, so healthy for you. You know, get some, getting some hemp in tea every day is, is my recommendation. You know, that will keep the doctor away. So that was where are we? we Biohemp was formed. We got the farmers to grow the hemp. So the harvest came and we had all this beautiful organic hemp seed. And so we got across from the oil and milled into flour and started selling it, you know, to anyone, like health food <laughs> yeah, stores. Yeah. We even went around to like a massage therapist to see if they buy the hemp oil. So it was excellent oil for your skin, but it doesn't work because, you know, it stains everything, right? So, <laughs> you know, just real. The laundry like, bills went through the roof. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it started to develop a little bit of following. And around 2000, so May of 2000, I decided to move out to Saskatchewan because that's where our farmers were and that's where all the processors were. So that's the hemp part. Nice. So that's the background of biohemp. That's helpful. I was curious about that because we hadn't talked too much about that company. But out of curiosity, were you heavily involved all the way through kind of the three stages you talked about, industrial hemp to medical and then to recreational or were you mostly involved in the industrial stage and then you know biohemp and so on and so forth and then you kind of moved on yeah i went from you know i guess hemp lobbying into organic agriculture and so all the medical stuff wasn't involved in that industry super supportive you know really some amazing courageous people especially from the uh, patient advocacy and some of the patients themselves just ridiculous that it was that a medicine used over thousands of years was criminalized, which, you know, we should all kind of take a look at that and go like, okay, so we apparently live in democracy, apparently, yet the government can pass laws which are completely unscientific. So, you know, it's, democracy is a loaded word, right? You know, if corporations control legislation, do we really have democracy because we can vote every four years? If corporations essentially control who gets to be the nominees for, you know, the American system, a two-party system, which is, you know, just ridiculous. It's interesting that people are still so partisan today, you know, when they can't really see their choices, perhaps between Coke and Pepsi, but it's perpetual war regardless. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think we're like democratic by name, but not necessarily by practice. It's more of like a republic or something like that is how the U.S. operates, right? So Yeah, and, you know, it's an empire and Canada's part of that, right? We're an ally to the empire and this is not... 
a condemnation of Americans or Canadians or individual citizens. It's really, you know, a system we inherited from the British, which was probably inherited from the Romans. And, you know, how we've decided to politically and socially organize ourselves for some reason. And, you know, a big part of it, unfortunately, is that, you know, we're not teaching children critical thinking skills in, in school. You know, we're not even teaching in university if my undergrad experience was, was anything. You know, that was... 20, 30 years ago, I think. So, but how so they've probably changed. progressed a tiny bit since then, but not much. <laughs> I think yeah. they always say academia is at least like 10 years behind industry, if not 20 years. So, so they're probably still not much further than from when you were in school. Yeah. And if we don't learn to critically think like on whole as a society, average, the average citizen is a critical thinker. We're going to destroy ourselves. And we are so, you know, we're on one of these rabbit holes. So, you know, this is a stat, like I, I like to quote, and it's one of the reasons I'm in what, you know, let's call it the good food movement. 34 million Americans have diabetes. 95% of that is type 2 diabetes, which is diet related or diet caused diabetes. And it can be cured through diet. A further 88 million are pre-diabetic and 95% of that is type 2. Again, it can be treated through diet. We have a system where we literally, and it's transparent. This has been written in the New York Times by the industry itself, you know, former food scientists who are executives, for example. We literally have a situation where corporations are preying on, I guess, the ignorance of the public and using food as addiction to make profits. And so just, you know, really put it in a nutshell. So the strategy is, you know, if you're a mainstream CPG company, it's to, you know, get the cheapest refined processed products as possible. So you can put it into a standardized addictive format, which will be consumed and literally provide like stimulation to people's pleasure centers in the brain, right? Like yeah. straight up addiction, you know, whether that's combinations of salt, fat, you know, sugar, or, you know, just each of those individually, this is what's going on. It's been admitted to. So, you know, it, it's out there. And it sounds almost like conspiracy level, like villain when you describe it in that short little summary there. But when you think about the timeline, like they probably started making real food at one point, a hundred years ago or something, but then over time, all the pressure to constantly increase profit and scale and scale and scale they had to slowly but surely compromise in every possible way with nutrition quality with quality of agriculture with the ingredients they're putting in there to make things cheaper and so on and so forth and more addictive because they needed to sell you not just one pack a day but like a month but like one pack a week and then one pack a day of whatever it is that they're selling so like when you think about it in the timeline it makes it seem less conspiracy theory and more, oh, well, of course, that's exactly how it worked. And that's how capitalism drives companies to act, right? Yeah, it's a brilliant business model. It really is, right? And, you know, I, I like to take the sinister out of it and just go to like, it's it's culturally acceptable. So even the people that are doing this are eating these products and like, oh, it's just a little bit of sugar. You know, any of you heard that? Oh, it's just a little bit of sugar. And it's okay because you can go to your doctor and the doctor will manage your disease through, through medication. And this is absolutely accepted by at least half the population, maybe more. But no one has been taught anything differently. 
you know, when you're at school and you're a child, you're not taught about nutrition. You're not taught about amino acids and the building blocks, you know, of, of life and sound health. We are not even taught about, you know, the true nature of disease, for example. So disease has a lot more to do with vitamin and mineral deficiency so that your body is no longer able to carry out basic functions such as, you know, immune system functioning. And then an opportunistic pathogen will come along and attack a weak organism, which is you, right? And through industrial agriculture since the 1950s, so even if you try to eat well, and say, like, I'm just going to eat all, you know, just whole foods, lots of fruits and vegetables. Those fruits and vegetables that you are eating are significantly nutrient deplete than they were in the 1950s. Plus, they've got a bunch of added goodies you didn't want in there, like hormones and pesticides and other things like that. Yeah, absolutely. So you have the double whammy of, you know, there's residues of, you know, synthetic chemical residues that have been shown to be toxic. I think it was yesterday, a colleague of mine, we're discussing Paraquat, which is still used today, and it's directly linked to Parkinson's disease. So they've directly linked the Paraquat to Parkinson's disease. But of course, right, to live under the fantastic notion that we are producing chemicals to kill pests that attack our food. <laughs> but it's not going to harm yeah. us, yeah. That's just fact. That just blows my mind. That's just, like you said, the, we're not teaching critical thinking, but like anyone who's gone through a logic course would, <laughs> would be able to see that as just a silly premise that we can put all these toxins in our food, but we're somehow magically immune to the effects of them. Yeah. Just crazy. It's a corporate fantasy world or corporate and governmental legislative fantasy world. And, you know, this is, this is the situation that we're at. So how... You know, and it's so what's happening is that, you know, millions of people, consumers, farmers, people that work in corporations, uh, small businesses, they're starting to make a change. They're starting to address these issues. There's a lot of forces that are pushing against that, of course. But it's just really, really interesting what's going on right now. I don't know if you had a chance to read that article in the New York Times about superweeds and metabolic resistance to herbicides. No, not yet. So... No, but I know about it in general. Yeah, yeah, so even the farmers are saying that the GMO technology, you know, Roundup Ready isn't working. The weeds are becoming resistant. Just in my small world, one of our organic farmers was talking to his neighbor who lost three quarters of land to pigweed, Palmer amaranth. Just whatever he sprayed didn't work, so he had no idea how to manage it now. So farmers are looking for different Yet answers. again, another... Another thing that, you know, logic would, would help you understand, of course, like evolution happens, you know, like, of course, those plants are going to evolve to resist whatever you keep spraying on them because they're trying to survive too. And this is the wild part about it, though. And this is from the weed scientists in the New York Times. The wild part about it was that they had their test plots and they had some weeds that their ancestors weren't exposed to glyphosate roundup but they still had resistance to the roundup when they were sprayed so the scientists are going like what the hell's going on yeah that's and creepy what they concluded was that because the plants have been sprayed with so many other herbicides previously they started to build up something called metabolic resistance and what metabolic resistance is 
is when the plant just kills anything foreign that comes into oh its into its system before it reaches the targeted cell. Wow. Okay. So it's literally get killing or dealing with the herbicide before it can hit the targeted cell. So it doesn't matter what herbicide you come up with or throw at it. It's just dealing with it before it hits the targeted cell. So the herbicide isn't working. But I'm sure corporations will find a way to take that evolution and put that into corn and whatever else. So the corn resists <laughs> everything. So you can dump more chemicals. It's just kind of like a, a cycle like you, because I, I think that's where a lot of this came from, right? Is the GMO products, they designed them so that they could withstand the chemicals so you could dump a bunch of chemicals, but now all those chemicals or all the weeds are resistant to those chemicals and it's just this self-fulfilling cycle that keeps spinning. Yeah, what the scientists are saying is though that nature's caught up with like this type of technology and that no matter what they throw at, you know, the weeds are just going to be there with the corn going, okay, we're still taking over because we're like badass. Well, I guess we need to figure out a way to make paper out of those weeds. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What some of our farmers and their conventional farmers are doing now, though, is there's electric uh, weed zappers. So they're electric, literally able to do that instead of spray, and it's significantly cheaper. So Interesting, okay. Yeah, so it's really interesting what's going on in agriculture now. We There's a needed shift away from the chemicals. Some of conventional farmers that we're working with, too, they're lessening their synthetic fertilizer usage. When they seed, they're seeding biologicals with their seed. Actually, these it's really cool what they're doing. And they're finding that they can get the same fertility or yield, but with less synthetic fertilizer. The less synthetic fertilizer you have, the better it is for the microbiological life in the soil because a lot of what that life does is it makes minerals and vitamins in the soil bioavailable to the plants. When you use synthetic fertilizers, it just bypasses them, so they die off because there's no use for them. That, that synergistic relationship between the plant roots and the biology is, is interrupted. And the whole key to building soil and therefore sequestering greenhouse gases as one benefit of that is all about the soil, the microorganisms, the biology in the soil. So you really want to feed that. You want to encourage that. It's essentially the whole, you know, theory and management practices behind organics. Yeah, organic and regenerative. I think the Kiss the Ground movie, which I, <laughs> I still need to jump in and watch that, but I feel like I've already watched it because I saw so many clips at Expo West. But yeah, I think that movie kind of breaks down a lot of that as well, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. It's like I, I haven't watched it either. I'm sure it's an awesome You've lived movie. it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. It's weird, Matt. I can't bring myself to watch those type of shows anymore. I used to be super into them, but after 20, 25 years, it's like, well, you know, so we do every day, so. I know. It starts to feel like you're just on repeat. Like, I, you know, after so many books and movies or whatever on a subject, you're like, okay, I'm not reading anything new anymore, so it gets a little hard to make yourself watch it. But all that's, I think, a good segue because we were geeking out on how you got into agriculture and then all this interest in things like organic agriculture and nutrient density and so on and so forth, which I think are somewhat hallmarks of the farmer direct brand. So after you sold biohemp, tell me what that kind of journey or transition was like into founding farmer direct. Okay. First, I think it's a good point in time to introduce my t-shirt just so people can see it. Describe it for those who are just listening to audio only, only as well. So yeah, I, I was on LinkedIn. It's my only social media platform that, that I'm on. But yeah, I'm just saying that without any 
prejudiced or anything, just in case people want to know what my social media literacy level is. It's pretty low. But I did find this awesome regenerative organic farmer on LinkedIn, and he was selling these T-shirts. So Graze Against the Machine is basically like, you know, his motif. And I think, you know, it's a great T-shirt because one of the big issues with agriculture is that governments and corporations are telling farmers how to farm. And instead of investing into the farms and allowing the farmers to do what they intuitively know how to do, and that's build soil. So I was in Saskatchewan, had biohemp. We're, we're doing pretty good. We, we started developing uh, clientele and health food stores across Canada and a few in the U.S. and a few uh, really decent wholesale customers. So it was going well. At that point in time, my marketing manager made an offer to purchase the company from me. And I was like, you know, okay. It was a pretty good offer. And we weren't really getting along. <laughs> so, nice. you know, it was basically just the two of us. And so I was like, great. And so that happened. And after that happened, three farmers that we had purchased hemp seed from, from Biohemp, said, hey, we have other crops that we'd like you to buy. And so I said to them, if they form a cooperative, I'll manage the sales, marketing, and logistics for them. And so in summer of 2002, Farmer Direct Co-op was formed. And so that was an super interesting ride yeah still is today the complexities of primary agriculture all the way up to the retail shelf is mind-boggling like just cleaning grain you know just that one piece to clean grain there's just so so much that can go wrong but anyways at the end of the day you know we got really successful of you know taking the grain from the farm and transforming it into you know awesome delicious organic whole grains from organic family farms the company was doing decent enough but then the 2009 financial crash hit and at that point in time farmer direct co-op all we did was you know commodity sales to organic food manufacturers so we're 100 organic but it was like truckloads of lentils damie's kitchen for example you know we ship flax to europe but when that hit, and I should say that Amy's Kitchen is an awesome buyer. So if there's any Amy's Kitchen fans out there and you ever, you know, are just organic food fans and you wonder, well, what's the relationship between like these brands and the actual farmers? Amy's Kitchen is an awesome example of, you know, an ethical buyer. So, you know, thumbs up to Amy's. We'll have to get them on the show. Yeah, yeah. They actually care. They care more about quality and relationship than price necessarily. So they always do offer fair prices. So I always like to, you know, even though it's organic, doesn't mean everybody in the industry is being fair to the farmers. And in fact, there's lots of issues with fraud and offshoring and stuff like that. So I like to, you know, give kudos or shouts out to brands that do care about domestic acres and expanding those and treating the farmers fairly. So when the financial, uh, whatever the crisis, what, what, what do we call it now? Anyway, Recession, had, maybe? Man, that was like 12 years ago almost. <laughs> yeah. The commodity markets just went like flipped like crazy. Prices crashed. The markets completely dried up. And, you know, just tremendous volatility. And so, you know, I met the farmers, talked to the board and said, you know, what I think we should do is we need to take Farmer Direct Co-op and brand it. We need to, you know, we need stabler, better paying markets. And so that's, you know, getting up to the retail, right? Instead of just trying to sell to, to food manufacturers and commodity sales. 
And so that was about 2010. We started to develop the Farmer Direct Co-op brand. We figured that, you know, we really want to push the envelope and have a differentiated product. So we decided to become the first organization, first national brand to be certified to domestic fair trade standards through the Agricultural Justice Project. So very similar to, you know, fair trade from the Global South. We're doing this domestically. We called it the fair deal. So, you know, it was going okay. We're selling, you know, a few pallets here and there. And then the Whole Foods Market called. And they're like, we love what you guys are doing. We want to launch you nationally through Central instead of regionally. Now, you know, to throw the CPG people out there, how it traditionally used to work with Whole Foods Market is like you have a brand or an offering, you know, you get into one region. If it sells well, maybe the other regions will pick it up. But the central office, national, never, you know, didn't. It was rare that they would take a brand and just launch it in all the regions. The reason they did, though, is because the buyers really understood that what we were doing would resonate with consumers. So what we were doing is our attributes were it was 100% farmer-owned, 100% organic, and 100% fair deal or domestic fair trade. And our product lines, because we didn't have any money to develop anything or fancy packaging or whatever, fancy packaging came later. And that's a whole issue, too, which we'll talk about with packaging, plastic packaging, all of that. But it was a line of 25-pound bags of flax, lentils, you know, certified organic, of course, like I said, beans, split peas, split red lentils, and a few other items. I think oats were in there for retailer bulk bins. I had no idea. I'm up in Regina, Saskatchewan, the furthest or the closest Whole Foods market is like got 2,000 kilometers away or something like that. So, you know, I had no idea what that really meant. We thought we'd sell them maybe, you know, a few pallets a month. So it ended up being five to seven truckloads of business a month and it was awesome. And so it, you know, it took us from, you know, basically insolvent, you know, we're about to go bankrupt to having money in the bank, retained earnings. And so that was, you know, it's also amazing that you were able to make that scale leap, you know, that will crush a lot of companies not being prepared to scale that quickly. Oh yeah. I just, sometimes I think there's divine intervention. I have no, I have no no idea how we actually made it through with you know the cash that we actually had to work with but you know that again you know the the answer to that of course is yes you know how you made it through and it's all down to relationships and we had just really great relationships with our farmers you know we had one farmer i shouted his name but some of them are uncomfortable about that so we'll just uh, just call him mr b and you know he we took grain, we sold that grain of his. We didn't pay him for God, I think, all of it for about two years. Oh my so yeah, he was like cool. He kept saying to you know, we gave him a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, right? And he was just like, We believe in what you guys are doing, it's important. So, you know, you know, keep going. And this is a farmer that had a lot of success with organics. Actually interesting story, he was a conventional farm, he went bankrupt, you know, had to or almost no, I think he did go bankrupt. And so he had to make the change to organics and he turned that into, you know, organic rotations done properly are economically viable option for family size farms. And if that organic farmer can build relationships with a buyer that's going to treat them fairly and pay them good prices, 
Not just like, well, I can get it cheaper from Joe down the road for, you know, it's a relationship, right? You know how much it costs the farmer to grow the crop. So, you know, there has to be an expectation all the way up the supply chain of a certain price. And if you can do that, then, you know, it's it's a winning formulation formula. So, yeah. So, okay. So where where were we? We're with getting the Whole Foods market. National Whole Foods, yeah. Everything's going great. So from 2013 to 2016, we sold in the Whole Foods market. So I formed the co-op in 2002. It would have been 14 years. I really wanted to like push the retail hard, of course, because that was where our margin was. Some of the board wanted us to focus on commodity sales instead. And so I said to them, look, you know, okay, you know, we, we have a difference of opinion here. So, you know, I'm going to go my own way. You guys... You know, yeah, I got a good severance package, all that. And so, unfortunately, in 2018, the farmers came back to me and said, hey, you know, you know, essentially we're farmers, you know, managing a CPG brand is, you know, it's a long way from the farm gate. And it is a long way from the farm gate. It's a brutally long way from the farm gate. So they basically asked me if I'd purchase the brand, take the brand over and uh, but still have the relationship with them where we purchase their grain and, and you know we develop our you know vision of organics which is you know a farmer and worker centered vision of organics a soil centered vision of organics so in 2018 me and my business partner luke zigovitz and luke zigovitz is an organic family farmer out of wisconsin we have another small company called organic hemp science so you can check out organic hemp science on the website, what Luke is doing, he's like, if you want to talk about regenerative farming, regenerative organic farming, oh my God, he has about 20 plus acres of land on a ridge top in Wisconsin. So it was heavily eroded when he bought the farm. In less than five years, he's brought it back. The fertility is amazing. And so he's growing absolutely beautiful certified organic hemp flowers and we're extracting it, making certified organic distillates and extract CBD. So if anybody's looking for, am I allowed to plug on this show or is that like, no? I yeah, for plug. sure. That's part of the point. Yeah. Okay, Let people right know. It's great. <laughs> so if you're looking for a really high quality certified organic family farm made and processed in the USA, and we use critical CO2 extraction. So there's no solvents in it at all other than the CO2. So it's a super clean product, organichempscience.com, and you can buy some and Luke will mail them to you. Nice. He'll personally mail it. Yeah. Farmer and fulfillment shop. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And he's got a beautiful family with honest farms, wife and three kids, you know, so it's like, you know, hopefully what organics is able to do. And I think there will be a mass transition to organics or sustainable agriculture, right? Like, so I don't know if these large conventional farms are necessarily going to be organic, but they're going to, you know, significantly reduce the herbicide and the synthetic fertilizers to the point where they are building soil and it's, it can be demonstrated, but there's going to be a lot of that mid-sized farm that is going to be able to thrive under organics. And so hopefully, you know, we see revitalization of rural America, you know, based on people that are, you know, living and working in the rural areas, stewarding the soil, right? Like it's really for, for us to get back to some sort of, I guess, environmental consistency, you know, we really need to take care of the soil and grow it. 
So, you know, again, organic agriculture way of doing that, but it's not just the soil, of course, it's the culture, it's the community, you know, going and really seeing that thrive and grow as the soil grows. So will the communities like really in a profound way. And we can see that in places like Africa, you know, people are trying to push a North American or Western style of industrialized agriculture, but there's significant pushback because it doesn't work. It doesn't feed your rural communities. You know, monoculturing corn is just good for the government because they can control the food supply. There's a whole, man, there's like, we go down rabbit holes of like uh, 1970. There's like 15 episodes worth of rabbit holes. Yeah, I know. (laughs) It's like, okay, so yeah, 2018, we relaunched the brand as Farmer Direct Organic. And the attributes were a bit different. So with Farmer Direct Co-op, is 100% farmer-owned, 100% organic, and 100% domestic fair trade. Under Farmer Direct Organic Foods, is 100% organic. It's 100% traceable back to the family farm, which grew your grain. And it's tested for pesticides and herbicides. So 100% tested. And I think I'm missing, you know, it's kosher. I don't think people really care about that. Well, I think you kind of merged two of them in one. There's a, it's a family farm, right? But it's so you said traceable and yeah, back to the family farm. But those are to some degree two different things, right? As well, so yeah, traceable and family farmed. And what it says on our actual packaging is so organic, traceable, and family farmed. So it's working out really well. People are resonating with that a lot, and I think again the biggest thing with Farmer Direct Co-op that people resonated with is that we're a 100% organic company and that it was like, you know, real organic from farmers here. And so we're able to bring that over to Farmer Direct Organic Foods that, you know, we're staying true to the organic mission. So as a consumer, if you support the brand, that 100% of that dollars goes back into organic as opposed to, well, almost all our competitors or most of our competitors, which do organic and conventional SKUs. So that's important to a lot of consumers. It's important to me as a consumer. I should say, too, that Farmer Direct was founded by a consumer, me, right, from that perspective. And so everything that we do is really based on that consumer perspective. There's so much wrong with the food industry that has to change, and the marketplace will respond positively to that. But it doesn't really seem like uh, corporate executives or, you know, leaders of food companies think that way. You know, they're not trying to, I guess, be, you know, in time with the paradigm shift. They They like to play catch up after they see the wave. You know, they're like, oh, look at all those brands riding that amazing wave. We should get on that. And they, they come a little late to the game or find ways to cut corners. I think some of the criticisms of like the non-gmo verified movement is that it just gave corporations like a cheaper way to like give consumers what they want without having to go the extra mile and be organic right so like anytime there's a way to cut corners that's often what they do unfortunately not all of them but many of them yeah but a lot of them right and so you know my opinion of you know someone in the food industry of the non-gmo project I think it was a, a brilliant strategy to prevent the proliferation of GMOs in conventional food. But what it also did was it gave conventional food some lipstick to paint on yeah. to look better than it was before. 
but it's still conventional food that's sprayed with herbicides and pesticides that's, you know, produced in an industrial way. It's just that they didn't adopt the GMO, which is good, right? So it's still conventional foods. The reason why people are eating organic because of pesticide residue and what's still there in the non-GMO project products, unless they're specifically certified organic. And so that was the danger of the non-GMO product, just like natural, right? You know, consumers started equating natural with organic, even though there's no legal definition of natural. And it was essentially just conventional food that was still sprayed and, you know, grown with synthetic fertilizers and put into a bag. But now it's just natural. So I give a really good example of that. There's a company, it's a legacy brand that's been around 30 or 40 years. And they used to be 100% organic. And they have a mascot, it's this older guy with a beard. And he wears a hat, and the hat's red. And they used to be 100% organic. Now I think about maybe 50% of their product offerings are organic. And what they did was they switched out their, say, organic flax skew for a premium or a natural flax skew. So they basically dumped their organic farmer suppliers that have been supplying them for years, allowed them to grow their brand up to a point where they were now mainstream, and they literally dumped those farmers and just replaced it with conventionally grown flax and put a natural or premium you know, word on the label and charged consumers considerably more than conventional flax but a little less than organic flax. So from a business point of view, it's brilliant because you immediately increase your margin significantly overnight. But of course, the problem is a lot of consumers, they still thought they were eating organic flax. So you just, as a consumer, you got to be really careful. And you still, you know, if you're buying things in packages, you have to read the labels and just make sure that it's still what you thought it was yeah that's happened to me multiple times where i have a product that i'm reliant on and then you go to grab it one day and you're like wait a minute (laughs) where'd the usda certified organic logo go and then you have to go investigate online and you find out that they're not anymore or something it's it's confusing that's why i appreciate brands like farmer direct organic where you don't have to think everything is organic and they're not going to change that right so that's great. Yeah, that, that will never change. If that changes, I'm not here anymore. <laughs> yeah, if that changes, don't blame Jason. It's someone else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, literally, I'll just form another food company or do something else because that's the whole point, right? It's like when I say that Organic Foods Farm and Jack Co-op was, you know, created by a consumer, you know, at least, you know, the driving market force behind it was me. You know, of course, the driving, like what makes it all possible are the farmers, but, you know, from that perspective, yeah, you know, consumers started Farmer Direct Co-op and then Farmer Direct Organic Foods. And, you know, it's we to water that down is just, for me, insanity. And I also think from a business point of view, it's insanity too, because there's millions, literally now in the States, there's millions of hardcore organic consumers and they want something to trust. A lot of them are really educated now. It's like, Why would you break that? I just feel you break that trust by doing something like taking an organic skew and making it natural for short-term gain. I think the marketplace is a lot more sophisticated. But one thing it does need, though, it needs brand champions like Farmer Direct as alternative when other CPG companies do stuff like that. 
So along those lines too, what we're finding out is that retailers, especially independent retailers saying to us, Hey, great. You actually have like a bean set. Well, we'll kick those other guys out because they're not hundred percent organic. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. And we were for the last 52 weeks running according to spins. Farmer direct brand was the number one national brand in shelf stable beans in the natural foods channel. So that was just right below private label organic and then private label natural and then farmer direct. So we were pumped about that and, you know, feel that it's a validation that our attributes are, are spot on for what the market wants to see. Yeah, that's great. And we were about to start talking about like change of what will and won't change. But speaking of change, let's talk about the current chapter too. So farmer direct is now in yet another sort of phase of its life cycle with becoming part of the above food family. So could you talk a little bit about how that came to be and what you're hoping that will bring for the brand? Yeah. So, you know, along this path, this consumer realized that, man, to really set up supply chains properly, it's costs so much money. You're talking about millions of dollars, literally millions of dollars to reform supply chains and so, you know, I'm thinking, you know, how much, you know, effect can our company really have? You know, how long is it going to take us to develop that type of financing, that type of retained earnings that we could even get to the point where, you know, we can build something and affect change? You know, even that's like, you know, a real loading site where we can like blend wheat, for example. Like that's, okay, so one commodity, right? One issue. You got wheat, you got organic wheat on the farm. Well, to sell that organic wheat to a mill, you need somewhere to blend that wheat because the mill doesn't want to buy, you know, this protein, that protein. They want it to be blended and delivered to them at like, you know, a price. Okay, so you have to build infrastructure to do that. You have to build a blending facility, you know, step one. Now, that doesn't really help you out because you're still involved in the commodity market. So, you know, still the price taker and you got to go back to your farmers and say, well, you know, we just got a crappy price on the wheat. So once it goes to the mill, it's like you need to build a flour mill. If you really want to control the margins and have the quality of product you want, and, you know, especially if you want something like a mill that only does organics, so you don't have cross-contamination with conventional grain, which, you know, you have pesticide residue contamination. And another issue that I don't like about split mills is this fraud's way too easy. You know, it's just way too easy to throw in a load of a conventional wheat. And you do that and you make so much money. So that's another issue with the industry, right? It's great when you're dealing with honest players and honest farmers, but there is a lot of temptation for fraud. So, you know, you want to really be in control of your supply chains and know what you're getting into. And plus, then you can control your margins. So then you got to build a flour mill. Okay, that's great. But no one buys 50-pound bags of flour. So now you have to buy the packaging line, right? And that probably has to be in a separate facility because the flour mill is too dusty. And then there's all sorts of regulations with, like, fire and safety. And you have to build explosive-proof rooms and explosive-proof engines and, you know, all of this. And then, like, so the capital expense to build the infrastructure I'm getting around to answering your questions. The capital expense to build that infrastructure, do it properly, is just out of this world. So I went looking for a partner with deeper pockets and came across Above Foods. 
about food, which is Grubel, Saskatchewan. And this is really interesting because for 18 months, I was, you know, trying to find, you know, essentially organic money. You know, there's all these ethical investors out there. And the one thing that the ethical investors all have in common is they're absolutely spineless when it comes to CPG startups. And even worse, they won't tell you that they're spineless. So they'll string you along. And this is just really good advice for like, you know, CPG startups. If you're looking for money, try to find business people to invest in your company, not investors. Investors, excuse my language, are a fucking joke. You go to the investors once you're five, you know, 10 years down the road, you have positive retained earnings, and then you go to those investors and you fleece them, okay? You get like these idiotic valuations like companies are getting like, you know, quarter of a billion dollars for a company that's doing $20 million in sales, right? But initially, hey, and if you find an investor that's not spineless and will actually tell you the truth, more power to you. But from my experience, 18 months, they don't invest in CPG startup. And like when I say CPG startup, from January 2020 through July 2020, we had $500,000 of net profit. Okay. The previous thing was 18 months. We had about $1.5 million of debt. So we got into $1.5 million of debt. We had able to pay half a million dollars off. And, you know, so we're trending in the right direction. We were distributed nationally by Unify. We just got Kehi on board. Yeah. Chainwide Whole Foods Market still, you know, we had the fresh market on board. Like it was popping. Not couldn't get them to invest. Now it could have been me too, right? So you never know, right? But like just, you know, on the face of it, the brand was popping. Net profit was positive. You know, great attributes, best in category attributes. But no, still too early right so that's just a little advice i have for people looking for money try to find businessmen yeah i think banks do the same thing right it's like they're looking for the sure bet where they can guarantee they're going to make their money and then use that money to make more money uh, same thing with investors whereas business people they're more they get it they get the long-term vision they understand what it means to take a risk and they can read your reports and see that uptick trend and know what it means to get nationally distributed whatever and they're more informed to take bigger risks, I think. Yeah. So try to find a business, business people in your particular, like, you know, if you're in beverage, try to find some beverage business people. But, you know, you may find business people in like industries that are not connected to food, but, you know, for whatever reason, they're making a move into food, you know, diversification, lots of reasons. But so we found a group called Above Food actually approached us, you know, we put our flag out there looking for money. And, they're really interesting because they came to us and said, look, you know, we know farming has to change. What their main business is, is they're exporting like lentils and peas and chickpeas and wheat to conventional to 300 customers in 35 countries around the world. So they have like significant infrastructure, but they wanted to get into the CPG space in North America, but they didn't just want to get into it. They understood that their conventional farmers have to get more sustainable. They have to scale sustainability and they need that thought leadership. And they want to bring us on board for that organic thought leadership. It's a really interesting situation. So I pressed them, right? It's like, okay, well, we can do this. But like in the contract, you know, I want you to sign that you're going to keep Farmer Direct organic. 
you know, whether we're never going to do conventional or natural, it's always going to stay, you know, so we got that in there. And they're like, no problem. We don't want you to not be organic. Organics is the future. And we need to learn from you and your farmers about what you're doing and see how much of that is applicable to conventional farming. Now, they already were doing a bunch of really cool things. They were using biologicals to increase fertility and reducing synthetic fertilizer use. They were like reducing their desiccation of certain crops and trying to get away from that. That's something we should talk about too, desiccation, because it never comes up and it's super important. So they're already doing some better practice with their conventional farmers. And so, you know, they came to us and it was really good. They are committed to organic vision. And since the sale in May, they've invested heavily into organic vision, which is allowing us now to create programs. For example, we're doing a Zoom with 200 retailers and we're going to, you know, it's about educating them about soil and whatnot and also our bulk bin programs. And I think we're even going to be providing them with the bins, some kind of like, you know, arrangement there. And so excited about that too, because one of the things that we had to do during the pandemic is we had to shift from 25 pound bags for bulk bins to one pound shelf packs. And so now we went from not really creating any plastic waste, now creating all this plastic waste. And, you know, just so people know the situation about like what is, you know, what's going on with packaging and especially the pouches, you know, ubiquitous in the grocery store shelves and and that there are compostable options out there problem is that compostable options are two to three times more expensive. So what we're kind of trying to figure out is how do we introduce those? And we're thinking of maybe one or two SKUs advertising them and basically saying to the consumer, this is why it's more expensive. But ultimately, again, our thing is COVID hit, bulk bin shut down. You know, everyone got rid of their scoop bulk bins and now have gone back to gravity feed. You know, this is for, you know, sanitation issues. So, you know, there is now the, you know, if COVID happens again, I know it's continuous ongoing thing, right? But, you know, now these retailers and consumers feel comfortable with the gravity bins. So these are like kind of COVID approved bins, if I could, you know, for lack of a better term. So that is the solution to plastic waste, you know, straight up, right? And one really cool thing too got in contact with a company that is producing compostable pouches for the bulk bins. So affordable, compostable, you know, so you don't have to use plastic at all for the bulk bins. And it's one more initiative that we're doing because so like our, again, company, you know, CEO is a consumer. So he's going to do consumer things, not necessarily business things. Right. And so one of the consumer things we we're doing, which of course there has to be a business justification for it. Yeah. I'm not an idiot. Right. It has to be business. Not all the time. It has to be a business justification for it. So the business justification is that, you know, consumers want companies, corporations to uh, show some responsibility for their waste. Right. And we feel rewarded. So we joined something called repurpose global. We found this awesome group mostly out of Asia, what they're literally doing is for every pound of plastic we produce, we're paying them to go into the ocean and, you know, extract a pound of plastic. And then they take that plastic and they put it through their system. They actually have real recycling systems. So for us, it's like, okay, you know, the plastic waste in North America 
goes in the landfills. It typically doesn't end up in the ocean. So it doesn't necessarily deal with the waste that we're producing here. But still, we feel that we're taking, you know, the waste we're producing out of the environment. And, you know, that's the best that we can come up with right now until either compostable bags come down in price or consumers accept the price of the compostable bags or the consumers like, you know what, we're just going to shop at your bulk bins because like, Hey man, that's like, we get it. And you know, the future of farmer direct, we will have a multi-ingredient consumer packaged goods. And again, like our brand promise will always be the same, you know, as long as I'm with the company, you know, and I say that in jest, I'm not going anywhere. No one's saying anything, you know, I have 25 years of building organic supply chains under my belt. So it's like, there's, there's just a tremendous amount to consider. But, you know, our brand prompts to always be organic, always be traced. But it doesn't matter how many ingredients are in that consumer packaged good. It's always going to have the same brand prompts, traceable, pesticide tested, family farm, organic. And then also, we're figuring this out. But I want everything that we produce to be approved for a diabetic diet. So what that means is that, you know, essentially in a nutshell that we're going to have a really low total carbohydrate to total dietary fiber ratio. So if we can hit a five to one, essentially what that means, that's another way of saying, you know, basically virtually no added sugar and no refined flour products in it. But it doesn't have to taste bad, right? So a good example of this would be a cookie. So... You have a usual cookie, refined white flour, refined sugar, chocolate from supply chains, which involves slavery. Blows my fucking mind. Excuse my language. But still, in this 2021, we have people that are making seven figures that are heads of corporations that are literally living off the avails of slavery. That's illegal. Yeah. Quick plug for another podcast for a better world. Check that out. They kind of break down some of the supply chains and the kind of around the fair trade or not so fair trade movements. Yeah. Dana Geffner, she knows her supply chains very well from that ethical perspective and full transparency. She's on our farmer direct organics board. So, you know, we're big fans of for a better world. And so, you know, as a, as a solution to this chronic disease crisis we have in America. Food corporations have to prepare even snack foods, prepared meals, it doesn't matter, that are diabetic friendly and that people can trust and so they don't have to think about it. Is there a certification or something for that? I don't know if I've seen one. No, the the only thing I've heard is like Whole Foods Market has told me about their NSA, which is uh, no sugar added. And they also have like NSAs, no salt added. I told them they should come up with like Snowden NSA sauces. <laughs> nice. <laughs> they thought that was funny. Yeah. We should do that, right? And then like profits can go to press yeah. freedom organizations cool. and stuff like that. Right? Like, tell yeah. me that wouldn't take That's off. Awesome. Yep. Do you know what I mean? Like, the marketplace is craving. It's starved <laughs> for companies that are doing socially innovative things. Yeah, that seems like something Ben and Jerry's would probably do for sure. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, you know, just kind of another rabbit hole down there. Where were we? Yeah, so yeah, we were talking about the future and what you know, all the new infrastructure that Above Food can bring in, and the future of Farmer Direct kind of not just keeping up with its 
family farmed organic and traceable but maybe diving deeper into kind of nutrient density or the right nutrient balance for diabetics or other kind of health concerns yeah i'll give you an awesome example of what above is allowing us to do so one of the issues right now is that protein 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 everyone's you know into protein so like we're taking soy protein we're taking pea protein we're fractionating it and, you know, people are eating these things, but it's not necessarily good for you. It lacks a dietary fiber and you're transforming the product. And it's usually like a single, you know, ingredient like for the proteins, like a soy isolate or something from pea. Now, if you take other grains, like you, you mix, say, oat flour with fava bean flour, you have an excellent protein profile, super healthy, high in fiber and can do the similar things like all these isolates and whatnot are doing, but in, in a whole food form. And then you can make things out of it like crackers, or you can make things out like even hamburger buns. So like, let's take the hot dog bun, for example. You know, the hot dog bun is a good example of why, you know, America is diabetic. You know, why there's this epidemic. It's because it's basically just refined white flour so refined wheat flour with all the fiber taken out of there it's not much protein in it there's not much nutrients you know it's fortified with this and that but it's not it's not nutrient dense and it's high glycemic so it turns into fat very quickly in the body so you know what do you tell americans stop eating your hot dogs and like so i'm like okay it's not it's not the right way to go it's like just make that hot dog bun healthier so if you take that hot dog bun and it's a combination, say, oat and chickpea flour, you get something which is incredibly high in dietary protein and incredibly high in dietary fiber, and it tastes basically the same. So the, you know, chickpea and oat are very neutral tastes. It's like, so, you know, you go from eating something which is essentially toxic and no value to your body to something which is going to you know, nourish you, but you're still eating a hot dog. So I realize I've probably kept you way too long. We could go down a, a million more rabbit holes. Maybe we'll just have to schedule another follow-up chat. But I appreciate you taking some time out of your busy schedule and all that you do to kind of push the food industry forward and champion organic and family farms and traceability. All that I think is starting to pick up more and more and more in the industry. You've always been kind of ahead of the curve 10 20 years ahead and i appreciate that because as the rest of the world catches up we need someone to look forward to who's paved the way so thank you for doing all that you do and thanks for carving out some time to chat with us today right on thanks gage love what you're doing with the vault and so me and gage have known each other for over 12 years now about I think. something like that yeah and gage is one of the really important people in the good food movement who helps People like me and other brands, you know, make their products look beautiful and it really helps us to message our ethical attributes to the public. So design is super important and maybe one day I'll interview you about design. So anyways, (laughs) thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for the shout out. All right. Cheers. Thanks. Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, leave a heart, thumbs up, or review, and share it with your colleagues. As an ever-evolving show, we also love feedback, so send us your thoughts or ideas for who we should talk to next to evolve at modernspecies.com. Business can be a powerful force for good. Is your brand living up to its full potential? 
Go to EvolveCPG.com to learn about our new impact workshop, Exponential Good. Over six weeks, we'll be thinking bigger, getting relevant, spreading throughout, going exponential, working backwards, and making it real so you can walk away with a clear vision and a detailed action plan for scaling your brand's positive impact exponentially. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Farmer Direct Organic, go to fdorganic.com.